0: The phrase justification by faith. Uh, you're like, I heard, I think I heard faith. You're likely thinking faith, justification by faith. And you'd be right, a dearly held doctrine by those in the true church. We read of it in relation to Abraham, uh, Genesis 15, and it was referenced in our last passage in James, who believed God and it was credited to him, counted to him as righteousness and it's the Apostle Paul's writings which speak so extensively of this justification by faith. But that's not the phrase I had in mind. The phrase I had in mind is justification by words, which maybe sounds a bit uncomfortable to you, justification by words. But we see something of this doctrine in James 3, 1-12. But before we see it in James, as I've said countless Uh, times already in this series, so much of what James says is really just elaborating on what Jesus has first said. And that is the case here, for Jesus speaks of justification by words in Matthew 12, verse 37. If you turn there uh, with me, uh, I'll read uh, from verse 34, where we see Matthew 12, verse 34 to 37. Jesus speaking, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Well, to say that justification is by faith uh, and to also say that justification is by words is not contradictory, but it is complementary. And we'll look uh, at that as we uh, make our way through James 3. We'll see how this works, this seeming contradiction that's actually Uh, complimentary. And we'll consider this passage, these 12 verses, under five headings. Uh, The first, words of warning, verse 1, words of warning, where we read, "'Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness.'" Not many of you should become teachers." Now, maybe it's obvious to you, but just in case it's not, what James is talking about here is a preacher teacher, a pastor teacher, not the common use uh, today where we might think of a primary or a secondary school teacher. Well, the reason I can say that is, well, for a start, there's no education system uh, back then like ours today, but also elsewhere in Scripture we see the term conjoined to pastor in the gifts that Christ gave to his church in Ephesians 4, 11, where it says Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. And even the way that's constructed there, uh, the pastors and teachers, it's on a list. It's basically saying these are one and the same, pastor, teacher, pastor and teacher. And so this is what James is talking about, and it's a command. He's not saying no one should become teachers saying, not many. Elsewhere in 1 Timothy 3.1, we read that any man who aspires to the office of overseer desires a noble task. But as we see here, this desire for that noble task comes with a warning. And James' reason for this command, it is stricter judgment awaits. So, it's only a small number in the church who will become pastor-teachers. Now, on this uh, topic of of those who bear office in the church, uh, I'm sure uh, many of you heard about the election of the incoming moderator uh, this week, the Reverend Dr. Sam Mawinney. Uh, He was interviewed by by the BBC, and as they seem to do every year, they always ask a question along the lines of whether the moderator supports the ordination of women ministers. Now, if you listen back... Uh, I heard about this by seeing the headline, and it was the the new moderator is against the ordination of of women. And then when you read the article, the article didn't quite reflect the headline, because if you listen to what the Reverend Dr. Mawinney said, you'll recognise that this was not his focus. Even though he suggested the ordination of women was contrary to his belief, contrary to scripture, he said, "I do hold this, but it's not what he wanted to focus on." And so, of course. The BBC made this the focus and have ran with it through the week. There is a controversy here, but I think it's largely manufactured by the BBC. Uh, and so the main issue here is not that of women's ordination, but that of the world against the church. And this is the angle that they seek to take. Uh, there was an interview the other morning uh, on the uh, BBC, on the radio. I forget what the show's called. It's before the Nolan show, Anyway. Uh, and where it was stated by the presenter that part of the essence of Presbyterianism is people being free to disagree. And then their headline and their story seemed to be about Presbyterians disagree. So they're saying this is what it's essence of Presbyterianism, and then that's their headline, Presbyterians disagree. Well, James 3.1 states, not many of you should become teachers, Uh, and that means there's also many men who won't become teachers. It's only going to be a small number in any uh, church Uh, we're not going to cover that this is not a sermon uh, on uh, ordination but it is interesting if you heard the debate the other morning uh, with a presenter of the bbc and and, and a female minister and and another minister uh, talking about this uh, you might have heard the referencing of galatians chapter 3 verse 28 in support of women's ordination i've heard this uh, Used this verse used on a number of occasions. I wonder if you heard that. I wonder if you heard it uh, during that interview. You know the verse where it says, "There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus." But we have to ask, what is this verse actually talking about? Is it about who has access to office in the church, or is it about who has access to salvation? and how the gospel unites all types of people. Go and read the end of Galatians 3 this evening when you're at home, and you'll see it's the latter. It's got nothing to do with who should be elders and ministers in the church. It's about how different people are united to Christ and have access to salvation. On the idea of oneness, uh, we read elsewhere about uh, how the church, we are one body but with many parts. Not everyone can be an ear, or a nose, or a tongue. We're all called to service in the church, but we are not all called to the same type of service. If you want to know what the Bible teaches on who should be an office bearer, you don't look at Galatians 3. Instead, you'd go to 1 Timothy 3, or 2 Timothy 2, or Titus 1. These are the pastoral epistles written to the church leaders who would follow on as the apostles died out. This was to be the enduring future of the church. This is where we go to uh, for understanding on office bearers in the church. James chapter 3 verse 1 refers to it, but it's only just that one verse. Uh, And this is, uh, in a sense, brings an important principle of our interpretation of the Scriptures, where we look for Scripture interpreting Scripture. And where something we're not quite sure what it's saying, we look for another passage of Scripture elsewhere which is maybe clearer on the subject and which casts a better light on the subject, and we go there for help. And indeed, on that topic, it is the pastoral epistles which are the go-to place. So the next time you hear someone wheel out that verse, Galatians three twenty-eight, in support of women's ordination, why don't you ask them, what is that verse actually talking about? Because there's a conflation of things by the person using it, if they're saying that it is about uh, who should be an office bearer in the church, that's not what it's talking about in its context in Galatians three. Scripture interpreting scripture, uh, James 3.1, We want to know more about what that says. We might go to the pastoral epistles, uh, but that is only tangentially related to our passage, and we need uh, to move on. There's twelve verses uh, to get through. Verse 1 is, of course, related to verses 2 to 12, for teachers of the Bible specialize in using their words. So let's move on to think more about words. In the second heading, we see in verses 2 to 5 that words have power. Uh, Words of warning, verse 1, and then words have power, verses 2 to 5. And talks about how we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle his own body. I wonder as you hear those words, do you or can you think of a day where you've put your head on the pillow at night and thought, I didn't say any wrong words today? Maybe you can do that, maybe you're self deceived, but most people. They'll reflect through the conversations that they've had through the day, and they'll think, oh, I shouldn't have said that, or I wish I'd said that, and we, we trace back through. We've been in an argument. We always like to pa- cast the blame on someone else, but if we're honest with ourselves, we reflect on the things we've said, not just the words, but the tone of voice, the intent behind the words, the emotion behind the words. I think we'll realize, as verse 2 says, we all stumble in many ways. If we don't stumble, we are perfect, we're told, able also to bridle his whole body, which again uses the same language of of bridle, as we read in chapter 1, verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And so James again with his surgeon's knife, is cutting into us in a deep way. He's cutting into us in a deep way, and it is uncomfortable at times to hear what James has to say to us. He's saying, never mind about thinking, I'm not bad, I'm not a murderer. He's saying, think about your words, the words you've said, maybe the words you should have said and you neglected to. He's saying, if you're not able to bridle your words, well then, there's a big problem. And, and in this passage, James uses quite a lot of pictures and images uh, to help convey his point. Uh, he says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, they, we guide their whole bodies as well. Same with ships, talks about the rudder, so he's comparing the tongue uh, to the bridle for a horse, the, the, the rudder for a ship. And in many ways, he's saying the tongue is so small and yet it exerts such control, such direction for the whole body, just as the rudder for the ship and the bridle for the horse. So, if you can control the tongue, it's almost like saying you'll be lining up everything else, other parts of behavior behind what the tongue does. It's small, verse 5 says, uh, and yet it makes great boasts. Words have power, And we can see the truth and the reality of this statement just by looking at at Genesis 1 or or Psalm 19 that I read earlier, God's words are powerful and creative, speaking creation into being, and so too the words of those who are made in God's image. They're also powerful, both with power for good and for evil. And because of this, the tongue needs to be tamed, This, uh, this image of bridling it, It's a picture of, without it being bridled, of a wild animal, dangerous and destructive. So words have power. And James seems to focus on their negative power. Versus uh, the next heading is words cause destruction. We see that the second half of verse 5 through to verse 8. Words cause destruction. Uh, beyond what you would think in terms of the size, the scope, the scale, uh, you would think this small little piece of flesh inside your mouth, and yet how powerful it is to encourage, to bring life. We think of speeches that have been made that have encouraged a nation, and yet we think of other speeches that have been made which have led a nation into an unjust war. Words have power both for good and for evil far beyond what you would expect for such a small organ in our bodies think of it like uh, a tissue uh, left in a pocket Uh, i wonder i'm sure as i look out there lots of you have a tissue just in case you need it in case you uh, well up in tears when i tell a sad story Uh, or maybe you've got a bit of a runny nose. Tissues are useful and helpful little items. You keep it in your pocket when you've got a cold, and there's a proper use for it. But I'm sure, like me, there have been occasions when that useful little item that's been in the pocket has remained in the pocket when it's come to be time for the laundry to be done. Uh, And there's just one tissue inside, and you're already imagining the mess When the wash is finished, there's loads of little white fragments all over the washing machine, falling onto the floor as you take the load out and then all over the clothes. Um, It's happened with me. The best way, I think, you let them dry out first uh, and then you can spend that considerable time just picking the little pieces off. Uh, And then you have to vacuum or hoover the floor. And in the end, it seemed like there was a whole box of tissues in the wash. Checking the pocket would have taken a matter of seconds and not doing so leads to maybe an hour or more of clearing up the mess. Well, the tongue is like that. Such a small thing, useful and helpful when used properly, but if used wrongly, which only takes a second or two, it can cause a great mess. The consequences far outreaching the initial action. That's my own illustration, but James actually has plenty of his own. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire. Uh, And he sort of rumps up the language here. The tongue is actually a world of unrighteousness. It's set among our members and it actually stains the whole body. It stains and it spreads, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. This is really serious, how we use our speech. You need to be careful. You do meet people and you'll hear of them or they'll say of themselves, you know, I just say it how it is. I call a spade a spade uh, as a sort of badge of honor and yet some of the things they say can be so hurtful and damaging and this passage actually condemns such speech as well as others. The entire course of life and set on fire by hell. And this idea of a world of unrighteousness, and you think, how could that be the case inside my mouth? And yet, how quickly can we be singing God's praise and then we can be out gossiping or slandering someone or passing on some truth uh, in gossip or some half truth or misrepresenting someone? And there's all sorts of ways in which we can use our tongues to dishonor God uh, and to harm. Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, or even just another human being who's made in the likeness of God. And it actually stains the whole of our lives. We were thinking earlier there about how when we bridle our tongue, it's almost like uh, our, our whole body's going to be set up to fall in line. Well, here we see when that's not the case, that the tongue, in a sense, stains and spreads and corrupts the whole body and the entire course of life it spreads, like the coronavirus spread from Wuhan, China, and spread across the world, causing so much, uh, so much havoc, so much breakdown of all of the things that we felt as normal uh, in everyday life. The tongue causes this sort of spread of disaster. We read, it's a restless, evil, full of deadly poison. He and James is trying to, to help us see that we have a big problem in the church. Remember this letter David Gibson the commentator talks about this is a letter to a church in danger of dying one of the big ways a church can die a church can be split apart is because someone says something because some communication takes place it might be uh, audible it might be with words spoken but it could also be words shared in a letter, words in in an email or in some other form of communication, and it can bring such destruction even to a church, leading to a divided church, forming factions where words are spoken against one another who are supposed to be one in Christ Jesus. And so words cause destruction, destruction beyond what you'd think. A small mistake of speech can have Untold consequences. A couple of contemporary mistakes of communication I came across. One cost 225 million dollars back in 2005 for a Japanese brokerage firm. Uh, at some there was a typo where accidentally listed were 610 thousand shares at one yen each instead of what was intended one share to be sold for 610,000 yen and so that company lost 225 million dollars because the wrong words uh, were communicated or another one closer to home Uh, taylor and sons was a thriving engineering firm in cardiff wales that accidentally got mixed up with taylor and son a different company which was going under company's house listed the wrong company the difference of one letter taylor and sons versus Taylor & Son, Companies House listed the wrong company as closing for good in 2009, causing a d- severe decline in business for Taylor & Sons. Customers disappeared, thinking the firm was gone, and in 2014, after 124 years in business, Taylor & Sons closed its doors for good, all because of this grievous clerical error. They did subsequently sue Companies House and won eight million Uh, but these were small mistakes with words which far outreached uh, what you would have thought. And yet these were accidental. How much more, how much bigger, how much more serious a problem when words are intentionally used to inflict harm. We're living in the day of uh, Twitter uh, and other uh, such uh, social media communication platforms. And in many ways, Twitter has become... I'm not the only one to call it that, I've heard others speak of it as a cesspit for abuse to be meted out, for all sorts of things to be said. Uh, And at times public figures have been castigated and suffered major consequences for tweeting a few words on a subject. Maybe it's a subject that doesn't fit the the currently accepted norm, or it's something else. Sometimes there's a grovelling apology Uh, Sometimes uh, there's a claim that the account was hacked or that someone else had uploaded (coughs) the tweet without authorization, and yet there's so much that goes on. So many insults are traded on Twitter, thousands upon thousands of messages that at times lead people to close their account because they're receiving so many uh, vile messages, even death threats communicated uh, across the Internet. You see, when things go wrong, usually words are in the mix. As you pick through the mess of a relational conflict or a wider situation of conflict, you'll find that invariably someone said something, or someone sent an email, or someone sent a text, or someone wrote a letter, and carnage followed. Evil words might come in the form of the use of swear words and shouting in outwardly aggressive and hate fueled speech. (coughs) Equally, though, Evil words might come out sounding pleasant enough. The person might even have a smile on their face as they say them. There might be the sense of all sweetness and light, yet what's said is laced with subtleties and nuance. Veiled criticisms are leveled to discourage and seek to hurt the intended victim. The difference, maybe, between being punched in the face and eating some delicious-looking food that might even taste good but it's been laced with poison. It's aimed at destruction. Words might be said to someone or about someone. It could be slander. It could be gossip. There's so many ways in which our words can be a problem, which our words can cause destruction. And as you sit here this evening, it's likely you've been the perpetrator in the case of evil words. It's likely there will be many who when reflecting on their life could recognize that not a day has gone past without the sinful use of words. Proverbs 10:19 says, When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. We read earlier in James chapter 1 about we are called to be slow to speak. Yet how many of us wade straight in using words in a sinful way. But it's also likely, as well as being the perpetrator in the case of evil words, that you've been a victim in the case of evil words, where the damage has been inflicted on you, where the nonsense of the saying, sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt us, is oh so false. Bruises and bones can heal, but certain things said in certain ways by people to you have never been forgotten. I'm sure as I look out, there are some here who something was said to you many years ago, maybe when you were young, uh, and it still weighs on you from time to time. The thought enters your head about what someone has said to you. Uh, And maybe there's particular pain, not when it's been said by some random stranger, but when it's actually been said to someone close to you relationally. Maybe a parent, maybe a spouse, close friend, and it still stings. Words can hurt, and words might never be forgotten. Words can cause such destruction. But as well as this, then, we move to verses 9 and 10, where words show our dividedness. And again, we're thinking about how this letter really is a message of the undivided church, wholehearted living for Christ. And in verses 9 and 10, we read about dividedness, seen in the use of our tongues. Verse nine, with it, our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. So there's a division that can be seen in how we speak. As I say, we sing our praises, we sing in wholehearted commitment to God, and maybe out in the car park, we're using our words to to tear down someone else. Or the following day, we're forgetting what we've heard and we're cursing someone made in the likeness of God. There's a disconnect in our lives. There's an inconsistency in who we are in our character. We contradict ourselves and it reveals the inner dividedness, the double heart, double-mindedness and divided hearts. But as well as this, or, or, or I'm sorry, James finishes that by saying, brothers, these things ought not to be so. We should already be clear on that message uh, from James so far, as he's dealt with division uh, of our lives in so many ways, thinking that we can divide our our knowledge of doctrine with our practice in the last passage. In so many ways, James is challenging us, challenging us to look at our lives, to look at our behavior, the things we do, and in this passage, the things we say to show us that all is not well and that we need medicine for our divided hearts. (coughs) And indeed... As we move on, we'll see that that is the issue. Verses 11 and 12, words reveal our hearts. Words reveal our hearts. And when it comes to evil words, uh, words reveal that the problem is at source. Verse 11, can a spring uh, pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So this is not a matter of just hearing and leaving and thinking, right, I'm gonna be uh, really super intentional and super hard about being careful what I say, thinking before I speak, being slow to speak, uh, seeking to be kind in the things I say, seeking to be upbuilding in the things I say and, and not say those harsh, uh, destructive things. There might be elements of that, uh, but the deeper issue is what's going on in the hearts. For as we know, uh, as we already read earlier what Jesus said, that the, it's out of the abundance, the overflow of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. You see, our words are a window into our heart. We could say the tongue is the heart's publisher. And so in this passage, we've seen there's words of warning for those who would be teachers, using words to instruct the church. We've seen that words have power. Words cause destruction. Words show our dividedness. Words reveal reveal what's going on at source. So in conclusion, to come back uh, to that question of justification by faith or justification by words, well, which is it? Well, it's both. One is the truth and one is the evidence of the truth. Our words show whether we have indeed received a new heart, Having been born again. Our words are a window, as I've said, into our heart. We could say the tongue is, is the heart's publisher. Remember that verse again, Matthew twelve, thirty four, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. If your heart is full of the joy of being committed to and having been indwelt by Christ through faith, then it will overflow in words that honour him and those around us. However, if your heart is full of anger, pride, self-interest, then your words will overflow in bitterness, in resentment, in grumbling, in complaining, in gossip, in slander. You see, our speech reveals the condition of our hearts. And so when it comes to our words, the heart of the matter is, is the matter of the heart. And so again, we need to take a look through our speech at what's going on in our hearts. We need to seek forgiveness through Christ. We need to seek the renewal of our hearts by his spirit as this word uh, comes to bear on our lives, challenging those wrong things. And also for those who have been the victim of uh, sinful speech that sought to brought you down, that you would know comfort. And also that we might not hold grudges, not write people off because of one bad thing that they have said, and that we would recognize that our words have power. And as Ephesians four twenty nine tells us, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is useful for building up those in the church. So we want new hearts And we want these hearts then to overflow with words that are powerfully good rather than spreading destruction and evil. So let's pray for that now before we close. Our God and Father, again this evening we bow before you. And we have had James as a doctor uh, looking at this symptom of a divided heart in us, poking around and prodding it with the scalpel, the sword of your words, seeking to to cast away what is corrupt, to cut out what is evil, so that we would put it away from us and so that we would know uh, the joy (coughs) and true life in Christ Jesus. Father, we do pray for the renewal of our hearts. We pray that where we have erred even this day and maybe at various times throughout this week and indeed throughout our whole lives, that we would, after this evening, endeavor to be both hearers and doers of your Word. that we would have a new heart to go forth and to speak words that upbuild your people. That we would, yes, at times need, as we're called, to use words of rebuke and reproof, but that this would always be done in love, that we would speak the truth in love, and that our words would be aimed to encourage and to build up others. Father, may you help us to quickly turn from words of gossip, words sprouting forth from anger and all other types of sin, that we would seek forgiveness from those we have sinned against. Father, may we know comfort to those who have been deeply affected by the sinful words of others. Father, help us to recognize the power of words, and we give you thanks for the power of your words that brought creation into being, and that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And so we pray that this evening souls would be revived, that there would be new life here in Connor Congregation, and that this new life would be seen uh, in the conversations that we have, uh, not only tonight, but in the weeks and the days and the years to come, that people would say of Connor Congregation, see how they speak to one another, see how they love one another in the way they speak, to each other and about one another, and that this would be a testimony to the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are indeed justified by faith in him. We pray in his name. Amen.